0: Well, we are now coming to wrapping up the book of Esther, and so as we wrap it up we are reminded in our story, we are reminded that King Xerxes of the vast Persian Empire had banished Queen Vashti, and a selection process that took place in order to find a new queen resulting in Esther being crowned queen. And for your information, you can take a look uh, at the map. It's not very clear, but at least if you look at the color, you will see that the Medio persian Empire was considered to be the most powerful and is considered to be the most powerful of the ancient powers. At its height, uh, during the reign of Darius I the Great, it controlled more than 2.9 million square acres or 7.5 million square kilometers of land, and it spanned three continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe; its control extended eastwards to India, and then it reached westward to Greece. And its capitals were Persopolis. Perse- uh, oh man, I had that down pat ahead of time, right? Persepolis and Susa, and its kings sometimes resided in Babylon. It is estimated that in 480 BC, the Persian Empire had 50 million people living under its control. And uh, this huge amount was roughly 44% of the world's population at the time, so that is a large amount of population being controlled by one king and, and one nation. And uh, um, Cyrus the Great, he conquered the Midians in 549 BC, and the Babylonians in 539 BC, and so. Cyrus is considered the founder of the Persian Empire and its first true ruler. And King Cyrus was known as a singularly noble and just monarch. One of his first acts. Uh, After gaining control of Jews held in Babylonian captivity was then to authorize their return to Jerusalem And then you will see there were a number of other uh, Kings after Cyrus and then there was Darius I, or the great and then Darius allowed more Jews to return to Jerusalem and uh, The rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem resumed and then got completed under Darius's reign the empire then reached its peak in power and land control. Uh, Xerxes I, or Xerxes the Great, he is the king in the book of Esther. And uh, following Xerxes as king are a number of his sons, and then finally uh, Darius III, his great-grandson of the Persian uh, king, Darius II. He turns out to be the last king of the empire because Darius is then defeated by Alexander the Great at a battle Uh, of Arabella near Nineveh and then of course uh, subsequent to that the the Persian Empire subsequently falls uh, and Alexander captures Babylon. So that for you is a quick summary of the rulers of the Persian Empire. So when we're talking about Xerxes and we're talking about Esther being queen, you will see that this, uh, this was a vast empire that we are talking about. So at the point in the story in the book of Esther, the Persian Empire is still very large. It's very dominant, it's very powerful. It is truly a world power. As a matter of fact, it is the world power. King Xerxes does not know that Queen Esther is a Jew, and he looks on her favorably. And by the time we get to chapter five, we find out that we've already discovered Haman, a powerful man in the service of the king, with ambitions to be as powerful as the king. And he has maneuvered and he's manipulated the king so that a decree An order has been sent out across this vast empire to exterminate all of the Jews. The plan was discovered by Mordecai who goes to Esther and asks her to go and to intervene and to go to the king and to seek mercy. And Esther, of course, she's afraid for her life, rightly so. Because first of all, no one can go before the king unless the king invites you to come before him. And if you, dis- if, if he doesn't summon you and you go before the king, well, in all likelihood, he has the power to have you killed. And so Esther is a bit afraid, but she's a queen and she's a Jew. And Mordecai calls her out on this and and he reminds her that she is where she is for such a time as this Meaning that God had allowed her to find favor in the king's eyes to be made queen uh, uh, For a time such as this when she would have to take a stand For what was right over what was wrong for what was good over what was evil and to make herself available to be used by God for the deliverance of his people And so what did she do? She summoned her people to pray and fast, and after three days, she puts on her royal robe. After all, she's queen, and you're going to go before the king, so you need to look impressive, right? Because you're looking for his favor. And so she puts on her royal robe and goes to the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall, where he can see her from his throne, which is facing the entrance. Now just picture this, she gets all dressed up nicely, she has a mission, she has a purpose, she knows the king's sitting on his throne, and so he's here looking out, and she walks right there so he can see her. And I can only imagine that as she carries herself very regally, and with a dignity and apparent confidence that inside... You know, her stomach was all fluttering with butterflies, and she's busy praying up a storm, right? As she stands there, and she's waiting to be noticed, and waited to be accepted and invited uh, forward by the king. Because after all, as we've said, the very act of approaching the king means that her life hangs in the balance. So as I, I read about that, and we're thinking about us in this day and age, there may come a time when we will have to make a decision for Christ, that could mean life or death. Now, some of you candidates, you know, you've recently made a decision for Christ. Your baptism is your outward testimony to that decision that you are, you have uh, confessed your sins, you've received Christ as Savior, you are now his disciple, you are now his followers. But whether you are a new believer or you, you have uh, been a, a follower for a long time, we need to remember that there may come a time When we will have to make a decision for Christ that could mean life or death. You know, right now, living here in Toronto, living here in Canada, uh, we may not necessarily see how that is possible, but we know it is happening in different world areas. And when it comes to the persecution of Christians, we unless you are subscribing to certain Christian news, you may not necessarily hear about it. You know, have you heard recently in the not so uh, distant past, you know, over 600 uh, Christians in Syria got murdered. Not so long ago, over 6,000 mostly women and children who are Christians got killed in Nigeria. We haven't heard about that on any of the news stations, right? So you don't know uh, when we may be called to take a a stand uh, for Christ. Christians are being martyred all over the place. Rosewood... Uh, have been working on bringing uh, a a family here, and so I'm not going to give you the details of that because it's still being worked out. Uh, But Rosewood has been working diligently for the last three years. This family became a Christian, a father, a mother, and two uh, children. They became Christian in a land where, now that they became Christian, they could very well be sentenced to death, so they fled. Uh, Somehow it got connected, and and Pastor Nick can tell you that story, And, and they have fled, but they've been in this holding pattern, and along the way the dad died. I think he became sick, did he? And so the dad died, pardon, from beatings because of his faith. Right, and, and a variety of things and so there's the mom and the two children waiting and they've had a couple of interviews But they're still in this limbo even though all the documentation is ready And I want you to you, to know this so you can keep praying and praying up a storm on their behalf Because if they get sent back to their homeland they in all likelihood could very well be killed So in the comfort of our city in the comfort of our nation We may not fully appreciate uh, what goes on when you make that decision for Christ But I think it's really important that ahead of time, before we find ourselves in that situation, having to make that choice, that we make it now. That, you know, should we be put in that position, we will. We will choose to publicly identify with Christ. We will not renounce our faith even if our lives are threatened. Now, in our case, perhaps it may not be as serious as something like that. But perhaps in our case, perhaps you may not get a job promotion if you were known to be a Christian. Uh, uh, Perhaps you might be made fun of or be called a fanatic or or any number of things. It could affect you in, in different relationships. But we are challenged, just like Esther, to make a decision for Christ now so that when the time comes, it's already made. We know what we're going to do. We're going to take a stand for Christ. So Esther is taking a stand for her faith. And as a reader of the story, and as you're hearing the story, Esther is standing out there right where the king can see her. And, oh boy, aren't you holding your breath anxiously and anticipating the response of the king. What will the king do, right? Will the king hold out his scepter, golden scepter to Esther and invite her uh, to come before him? or, uh, Or will he just feel so interrupted and angered and condemn her to death? Well, the king looks up. The king looks up and he saw Queen Esther standing in the court and he was pleased with her and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. Oh, phew, there. And so Esther approached and she touched the tip of the scepter, which reminds us once again that God truly does answer prayers. You hear it all the time, it just goes in one ear and out because we know He does, we believe He does, but really He does answer prayers. And there are times when God will miraculously deliver us from situations. There are times that He's going to extend His protection, and yet there are times that He just won't. Uh, When He will allow other people's free will Uh, to impact us in in a negative fashion. And uh, and yet, he is always present even when we go through the most trying times. He does protect, he does deliver our souls. He will always answer our prayers. Yes, no, or wait. And his answers may not always be what we ask for uh, or expect. If we think of some of the things that go on in the world uh, Uh, around us how uh, I I take one example how hard and difficult it must be uh, you know for the families especially Christian families who have had their Children uh, killed in a a school shooting in the United States Christian families I imagine they went through a time when they asked God where were you Uh, God? We believed why didn't you protect my child and God certainly had the power to intervene and God have could have stopped the shooter but then it would have gone against him himself in in, uh, allowing free will to every single human being and the ability to exercise that free will. And in such a situation, we might be tempted to say, well, who cares, intervene anyway, right? But we don't want him sometimes intervening in some of the decisions that we make. So we can't have your cake and eat it too. Right? Free will is free will to everybody. And uh, so even when the Lord allows some some very hard and very difficult things to happen, the good news is he is always present uh, to help us. And you know, and sometimes Christians will make decisions. They will say, well, you know, I'm not hurting anybody, but I've decided I am going to participate in having a social drink. Well, that is your free will to do that but knowing that sometimes a social drink can lead to a problem with alcohol and destroy families. Or a Christian may say, well, you know, I have the free will to do whatever I want with my money. So, you know, I'm just gonna slip over to Woodbine. You know, I'm only going for the show, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know? But I take $20 with me, I cap how I'm gonna gamble. And next thing you know, it could possibly lead to other things. Uh, and so, but we, you know, we want that free will. We don't want God intervening and say, don't go and do that sometimes in things that we might theoretically consider not so harmful as other things. But God allows the free will to all because He will call us all to an accounting. And so, as Christians, we are challenged. Uh, to live in full obedience to Him and allow Him to take full control of our lives so that He can use us. But on the other hand, we recognize that even when bad things happen to us, and there certainly are no easy answers, that we simply have to continue to trust Him, to live obediently to Him, live in a way that honors Him. And uh, and I believe He is gracious. He is gracious in the way He sustains and helps us. And And as we do this, may we be praying... So we can say it like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's a very difficult prayer to pray, but if we are making a choice that whatever comes, I'm going to choose Christ, then I believe by his Holy Spirit, he's going to give us the strength to be able to pray this prayer. And so maybe we ask the Lord to deepen our walk with him, our relationship with him, that we can truly say that. So back to the story. What's next? What plan did Esther come up with? Is she strategic enough to come up with a plan that will catch the king's attention, intrigue him, causing him to be curious? What will she say and do? She can't very well just march in and say, Xerxes, I'm I'm your wife. I'm the queen, you know, but I want you to know I'm a Jew. And there's this man out here named Haman who's plotting to kill all the Jews, do something about it. Can't very well do that, right? She may very well be the queen, but she has limited power, limited authority. And besides, you know, sometimes you can't approach certain things that directly, right? Um, And so that wouldn't work. Uh, The king really, I don't believe, was a sentimental person. So He he may certainly have been pleased with her, but what is really important about the king, he's always concerned about what's his. And Esther was his. So she comes up with a plan. I like to call uh, call it maybe sanctified cunning. (laughs) Right? Anyway, this this is just a, a simple example that before we rush into things, even after we've prayed and fasted, that we need to plan and be strategic about our approach to a particularly difficult situation. And so the king, Esther goes be, before the king, she touches the scepter and the king asks Esther what uh, um, he can do for her. And then he makes this extravagant offer, up to half of my kingdom. Well, you know he's not gonna give her half of his kingdom, but it's a compliment, right? It's a compliment. And I'm thinking uh, that sometimes just because we may find ourselves in a situation we, where we are offered much, whether that be possessions or position or money, doesn't mean that we should take advantage of that. And so Esther was gracious, you know, that was a wonderful offer, that thing. Uh, we, We need to be wise with accepting and using what is before us. And so perhaps the king is thinking, this must be really important and urgent, and I wonder what Esther wants. And so what does she ask for? Ah, she casts that line, hooks the king's interest, right? And she says, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Can you feel the dramatic tension building, right? Now, I'm not sure what the king was thinking. Likely, he was a bit surprised that Haman was included in this invitation, as he would have been expected. I'm the king to be invited by himself uh, to the queen. But Esther is tactically maneuvering the king to get him to the place where when the time is right, she is going to make her request. Further, uh, by inviting Haman, one author says she is um, maybe setting the king up to feel a little bit of competition, right? And so Haman may be the king's uh, favorite, but does the king really want him around when he's gonna have this dinner with Esther? Hardly. But this tactic of Esther is done to put Haman in a place where he will finally be exposed, but also uh, to cause the king some frustrations. And there is a hint here that Esther's purpose is to sow a, a resentment in the king's mind and have him think that this Haman was staking too big a claim on both the kingdom and his wife's esteem brilliant, isn't it? And so God is not mentioned, but I am certain that Esther, after praying and fasting, was being led by God to issue this invitation and come up with this plan. Which leads us to say, when we have tough decisions to make, make sure we know and understand the people that we are dealing with, the climate and the culture in which we live, and take all these things into consideration before we respond. Now you may say that Esther is playing one person off against the other, and, well, that's not really Christ-like. And I would say that Esther had to maneuver the situation in order to get a desired response. She did not deceive anybody, she didn't lie, she, didn't, uh, she just simply planned an event in which lies and deceit and hatred would be exposed." Now just picture Haman, picture Haman. He is grinning ear to ear, right? He is puffed up, he's so happy, he's so downright giddy. He's been invited with the king to a banquet by the queen. Wow, he's practically made it, right? Just get rid of the Jews out of his life and life is gonna be great. But he's almost there, and so he leaves the palace, you know, and he's bouncing as he's walking out the gate, and who does he encounter? None other than Mordecai, right? We need to trust, that, trust God to take care of our enemies or the enemies of his cause, right? Just trust him. And so picture this. The balloon of Haman's happiness gets popped, right? On the way from the palace, feeling elated, he sees Mordecai at the gate. And the man has the audacity not to get up or to bow down before Haman. And Haman's bo- blood boils. He was, the scripture says he was filled with rage against Mordecai. I'll tell you this. People will notice when you take a stand right? When we take a stand for Christ, when we take a stand over right and wrong, when we take a stand for what is moral over what is immoral, people will notice. And Mordecai always took a stand for God. He refused to bow down to Haman, and Haman noticed. In Malachi 3.18, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Haman chooses to do nothing about this situation right at the moment, probably because he's still riding high because of his invitation to the queen's banquet and because he already has a plan in place to exterminate the Jews. So Haman goes home and once again he's happy and he calls his wife and his friends together to boast. He boasted to them, in verse 11, about his vast wealth his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And if that wasn't enough, he's the only person beside the king to be invited to a banquet with the queen. And I can hear the celebration now, I can hear the laughter, I can hear the clinking of glasses, you know. If only, if only he would have heeded these words, pride goes before destruction. Maybe he didn't hear that earlier. So while he's talking, it's a bittersweet celebration because of the actions of Mordecai. He looks to his wife and friends for advice, and they advise him to build this pole and ask the king to have Mordecai impaled on it. Can you imagine? Drastic or what? Wow. Talk about hatred. You know, there is, that is some anger. That is some hate. But in a mean way, time, he plans to go and enjoy this banquet. So, a couple of lessons here. One, we have to be careful not to allow ourselves to get to the point of hating people for whatever reasons. You know, there are people who are just going to downright tick us off, right? It's going to happen, right? They will do things to us, but from the Christian point of view, there is no justification for hate. Even when we have been wronged, even when we have been abused or misused, we are not to hate. WE, WITH THE POWER OF THE HOLY SPIRIT, ARE TO OVERCOME HATE WITH LOVE. YET WITH THAT SAID, YOU KNOW, THERE MAY BE TIMES WHEN WE HAVE A REAL BIG CHALLENGE IN LOVING SOMEONE. AND IT IS ESPECIALLY IN THOSE TIMES THAT WE NEED TO CALL ON GOD TO HELP US uh, TO EXTEND THE LOVE OF CHRIST. WE MAY NOT BE ABLE TO LOVE IN OUR OWN STRENGTH, BUT WE CAN DO IT WITH THE POWER OF THE HOLY SPIRIT. Also, we must not let our anger blind us and cause us to make irrational decisions build a pole, this tall pole, to impale Mordecai. I mean, that's irrational, right? And that's why we are never to make any kind of decisions when we're in the heat of the moment, when we're upset or angry. Those decisions will always be wrong. They will have negative consequences. And even if you go and apologize and say you're sorry, some things you just can't take back. Right? So do not make a decision when you're in the heat of the moment. Further, don't surround ourselves with people who will only tell us what we want to hear and who are not strong enough to confront us and correct us or help us to make the wise decisions. More to, that's what Haman did. He, he had his wife, he had these close advisors, and instead of calling him and saying, you know what, you're being irrational. You know, what you're trying to do to these Jews is just downright wrong. Instead, they were there, go ahead, do it. Let me give you some ideas of how to do it, right? And so we don't want to surround ourselves with people who aren't brave enough to come to us in a loving fashion and confront us on uncertain things. But it's almost comical now at this point in the story, right? Well, actually it is comical. What happens next? God does have perfect timing and a great sense of humor. So while Haman is busy plotting, the king can't sleep. He doesn't ask for a nice glass of warm milk. In my case, I just tell you, every Sunday night I take a few sequels because I need to sleep. I have trouble sleeping, and Monday I'm off, so I plan to sleeping. So the king doesn't ask for a glass of warm milk. He doesn't say God is equal, so I can take. No, no, no. He ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. He probably thought, you know, that's history, it's dry, it's boring, I'm gonna fall asleep. But what he discovers is that Mordecai had saved him. Remember earlier in the Book of Esther? Mordecai had saved him from assassination and so now the king is wide awake. God is good, isn't he? And so the king begins to wonder, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? Has anything been done to recognize that effort and to honor uh, Mordecai? And the king finds out, oh, no, nothing, which just reminds us that God's timing is always perfect. So it gets even funnier, right? The king wants to know who's in the court, and it just so happens that Haman came to the court to, because he wants to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole. The, the king is not aware of Haman's plans and Morde, uh, for Mordecai, and Haman is not aware uh, that the king has just discovered and wants to make plans to, to honor Mordecai. Sweet, isn't it? And I always believe that. God has a sense of humor. Well, I always said that, you know, I went to, you know, a Bible college out of of high school and God never called me, he called me 20 years later, God has a sense of humor, right? Anyway, so the king puts it to Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, he is so pompous, he's so puffed up that he just automatically thinks that the king wants to honor him, right? And so he's going to make this good, right? He's so blinded by his uh, hunger for power that he could not possibly see that the king would want to honor anybody else but him. And so he comes up with this elaborate plan. A royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. That should be given to the person and then someone walk that person through the streets announcing that the king is delighted in that person. Great, great always remain humble, people. Always remain humble. James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Leave it to the Lord, because if you're not humble, you know what's going to happen, right? Never assume or desire to be honored above others. In fact, with an attitude of humility, always look to promote and uh, and recognize the efforts of others. So, Haman is trembling with anticipation and excitement. He can't wait for the king to okay this. He can see it now. He's wearing a royal robe, he's sitting on the king's horse, he's being paraded through the streets and everyone is bowing down before him and all of a sudden he comes crashing down to earth. The king says to him, go at once, get the robe and the horse and do just what you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and do not neglect anything you have recommended. Bam, Haman's jaw hits the ground and I'm hearing inside, he's going, no, right? This can't be happening. No, no, doesn't the king know that Mordecai is a Jew? And he's thinking, what am I gonna do about this? What am I gonna do about this, right? And so he puts on that smile outwardly, but inside he is just, you know, fuming, he's humiliated, he's crushed and and he goes home with his tail between his legs and in Esther chapter six, his advisors and his wife said to him, now they have a different story. Since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him, you will surely come to ruin. While they they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had uh, prepared. So at this point, Haman's wife and friends have come to the conclusion that God is on Mordecai's side and you can't fight with God, and basically they are advising Haman to just back off, right? God is always on the side of his children. Others will know it. Whether or not they choose to acknowledge it and change how they treat you is a different matter. But it will always be recognized that God is on the side of his children. So don't ever back down. Don't ever recant your faith. Be steadfast, uh, stand firm. Esther chapter 7, so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your position? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. If, it were mere, if, it, if we were merely being sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Charles Stanley says, even in her urgent request, Esther demonstrates a humble spirit and a restrained attitude, thus endearing her even more to the king. Her godly self-control wins her far more than a violent outburst ever could, which leads me then to say, no matter what desperate situation you find yourself in, maintain your composure and self-control. It is only when we do that that God can work in the situation. It is only when we maintain that self-control that God can work. He's not going to work when we turn angry and belligerent and aggressive and demanding because then he can't work through that. Verse 5, King Xerxes um, asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman... Remember, Haman's right there, right? Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen, and the king got up in a rage, and he left his wine, and he went out of the palace. I, I say that's self-control, right? He, he just withdrew from the situation. And sometimes we need to do that. He withdrew. He needs to think about this. He's got to come do something. And so he goes to the garden, but Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Ironic, isn't it? It reminds me that no one ever feels sorry or asks for forgiveness until they are caught out, right? Anyway, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. He's so busy begging for his life that he actually got by the couch, touched the queen, and the king comes in and he says, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a pole reaching a height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai and then the king's fury abated. And Charles Stanley says the reversal of fortune just keeps happening. Even when the skies grow darkest, we can stand on God's word and prayer and pray that he will intervene for our own good and glory. And you know what? Esther then inherits Haman's estates. Justice, right? God's justice, right? And since the king, he could not you have to understand he could not actually reverse the decree. He issued another decree allowing the Jews to defend themselves uh, you know, in whatever manner that they saw fit. Mordecai gets promoted. There is great joy amongst the Jews uh, in the empire. And uh, Haman never gets to see the reversal of that decree. But we are never to lose heart when things seem bleak. Instead, remember that God loves to act on behalf of those who wait for him. Max Lucado said, in our bootstrap society where you tough it up and do it on your own and take pride in being a struggled individualist, the one thing that seems to escape us is being before God on our knees, being before God aware that we are helpless and allowing him to assist us. So don't get busy, uh, you know, securing your rights or accomplishing your agenda that you miss the opportunity to serve, surrender your life to God so that he can use you to accomplish his will. God's timing is always uh, perfect. And then the last chapter in chapter 10, King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai whom the king had promoted Are are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent amongst the Jews, and held in high esteem by the many followers, uh, many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. God means it when he says, those who honor me, I will honor and so that's the book of Esther. That's the story of Esther for such a time as this. We are where we are, you are who you are, and God can use you just where you are at this time. You have. We all have to make a decision. Are we going to always choose to be obedient? Are we going to choose to honor him no matter what comes our way? And just let him take care of the rest because as this story shows, God will always take care of the rest. His timing is perfect, and along the way, he has a wonderful sense of humor. God bless you for such a time as this. That's where you are. Live it in full obedience to the Lord. Amen. Amen.